0: A few years ago, Psychology Today wrote on the reality that people in various stages of life are looking for comfort. Of course, they're looking for comfort. We're looking for comfort, looking for something to bring pleasure to our lives, something to help us feel better. Um, Of the many things that they could have spoken about, they spoke about comfort foods like, like chocolate or ice cream or french fries. Um, you could add a number of things to the list, couldn't you, of what, what comfort foods are. They tend to temporarily at least make us feel better. For example, chocolate has a strong effect on mood, generally increasing feelings and re- feelings of happiness and reducing some sort of tension in your life. So if you just look in the pocket in front of you, I feel bad for the front row, but if you could look in the pocket in front of you, you'll see uh, you should find a chocolate. And I know some of you will have to share. But that's just, uh, um, I, would, I would just ask actually, uh, Phil and Dawn ask that you just like, don't throw the, the wrappers back in that box, or back, back in that little uh, envelope. But chocolate is something, hopefully just eating a little bit of chocolate this morning will, will just kind of calm you down about, uh, about this message. So, all of us have a need for comfort, whether it's comfort uh, for everyday kind of experiences, that we all have or deeply disconcerting experiences in our homes or society or, or our employment or whatever. M- mankind has looked for something to comfort them for millennia now. Th- this was true for the Israelites when they were hearing this passage from Isaiah, this, this, this chapter that we just read. They were facing some significant difficulty in days that were significantly difficult uh, under uh, the threat of the Babylonian exile. Um, and as they went into exile, they would have had thoughts like, or questions like this, has God been defeated by the gods of Babylon? I thought our God was great, but now the gods of Babylon seem to be taken over. We've got nothing. Is God not really the sovereign one? Have we been duped into believing that our God is really relatively impotent? Has our sin separated us from God forever? Has God hidden his face from us? Does God hear our prayers anymore? ask those kind of questions. They were asking those kind of questions. And these questions are not far off from what we ask today. Um, We are in exile here, is the way Peter speaks about it. We're elect exiles. Maybe Your circumstances are difficult this morning. You feel that God's left you to fend for yourself. You feel all alone. Perhaps you consider the condition of sin and suffering around the world or in your family or or in yourself. And you just are tempted to wonder if God is as sovereign and as powerful as he's made out to be. Perhaps you pray to God. You feel as though he's not there. You, You wonder if he ever speaks. You wonder if he hears. You wonder if he cares about you at all. Middle of your difficulty. Um, Pastor Kale preached or, or prayed just earlier, just on um, sometimes Christmas time brings great joy to some, while for others it does not bring great joy at all. It, brings, it brings, brings lots of tears, lots of sorrow. God knows these questions are being asked, He knows that these questions will continue to be asked. And so he graciously speaks, us, speaks to us in Isaiah 40, uh, beginning in, in verse one and, and going all the way through. And we need to hear this as much as Israel needed to hear it in that day. You and I need to hear what God tells us, or tells Israel in the wake of the promise of difficult days. Because we've been promised difficult days. In this world you will have trouble, tribulation. It's just the reality. We've all experienced it maybe we're experiencing it this morning we have in our text today enormous reasons to be hopeful and contented and comforted amid our difficulties not just simply getting removed out of our difficulties which obviously is very joyful but short-lived here so it's comfort that lasts and it's especially at christmas time when we're brought profoundly face to face with the one whom alone can comfort our weary souls as we live in light of his powerful promises, that our deliverance is assured in him. This morning we're going to consider two primary points from Isaiah 40 that are meant to bring us comfort. First thing is that God has promised to deliver his people. Second is God is powerful, able, to fulfill his promises. And then we'll come to hopefully the same conclusion together at the end. First, God has promised to deliver his people. Verses 1 and 2 provide an introduction of sorts and sets the tone for the verses. Comfort. Comfort, my people. I mean, there's been lots of warnings up to this point. So it's comfort, my people. Comfort, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Isaiah, in this moment, is foreseeing a day when God's people will be absolutely crushed to the ground under the burden of their sins. Not that long from this point, Babylon is coming and he's... They're going to crush them. They'll feel sure that all is lost, that all God's promises that they had have been nullified, and, and by because of their rebellion. But the, the message that God Himself proclaims is that the story is not over. In the midst of great grief and sorrow, the answer to one of the Israelites' questions is being answered immediately. The question, has God left us? God emphatically says, No, I have not left you. You feel alone, but I've not left you. Your warfare is ended. What? I'm in the middle of this sorrow now. Your warfare has ended. So comfort. Take comfort, my people. Your punishment is complete. Well, how so? Well, God doesn't simply say this from a safe place in heaven. he take comfort, my people, and then stand far off. Rather, in verses 3 through 5, we read of someone crying to prepare the way of the Lord in the midst of the wilderness to make straight a highway for the Lord. What is this highway for? It's a wonderful picture for the king of glory to come in, for the king of glory to come. Nothing is gonna get in the way of his coming. It says in verse 4 every valley shall be lifted up every mountain and hill be made low the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain in, in other words in other words nothing is going to get in the way there's not going to be the slow upgrade of him coming and the faster downgrade coming it's it's going to be flat. It's going to be a straight shot. I was in Iceland a number of years ago and just cutting across the top section of Iceland was just like miles and miles and miles and miles through volcanic rock, pretty much, that just went on forever. There was nothing in the way of us going 85 miles an hour in a little Toyota I don't know what the little Toyota's called, I forget, but it's a little Toyota. It was, it was humming along pretty fast and getting us along this moonscape of a country, of that part of the country. This is the reality of what's happening. Every valley should be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. uneven ground should become level in the rough places of plain, so that nothing stands in the way of the King of glory coming. Guaranteeing deliverance, a deliverance so clear, so present, so that the Lord states that His glory will be revealed to all flesh. It's going to be clear when He comes. It's, it's the wonderful counselor. It's the mighty God. It's the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the omnipotent Creator God who has promised here, and He's the one who will have it done. It will be done. Deliverance is certain no matter how it seems. No matter how empty you feel this morning, no matter how sorrowful. You feel no matter how difficult the situation is, no matter the disease, no matter what God promises in Christ there is comfort, there is deliverance, there is hope, there is joy to know. In verses six through eight, We've been given a picture of the weakness of mankind. We're, we're like grass that just withers after such a brief time. And we're like a, a flower whose beauty fades after a quick time. The, the, the point, well, finding comfort in the world's things, like, like chocolate, as much as it's a gift from the Lord, or whatever else your comfort is, comfort in humanity is a fickle business. Comfort in circumstances, fickle Business, but trusting in God, knowing that deliverance comes from him and him alone, and that no man can can utilizing the, the words of the text can can actually blow on the Lord and cause him to fail. Nothing can cause him to fail. Nothing can cause his promises to wither. Not our unbelief, not what the world would cry out, God will be faithful to deliver all those who trust in him. And that's wisdom. Choosing to trust in the promises of God, choosing to walk in the fear of the Lord, to trust in His Word that stands forever, it says, a word that never fades, a word that never loses its power, a word that never loses its beauty. I think regularly of Psalm 19 and where it says the, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, giving wisdom to the simple, making wise the simple. Or, like what we did as a church a while back and kind of went through Psalm 119 over a number of days. It was just this beautiful, like, like hammer drill of grace in God's word, of saying His, His word is true, His word is trustworthy. I can believe His word. Why? Well, not just because it's, it's this book, but because it's declared to be the word of God, the faithful one, the one who can be trusted in so certain are his promises that we're told in verses 9 to 11 to go up on a mountain and tell people, go up so people can hear this is good news. Good news of great joy, in fact. He has promised to deliver his people. He has come with great might. He rules over all creation and rewards all those who are his. And we come to the beauty of verse 11, and here we see that the, the Lord... The Lord isn't just a mighty, sovereign Lord, a mighty King who rules over everything, but He is a gentle shepherd, one who holds us in His arms. And you feel the, the proximity, the, the love, the, the care, the nurturing. Let's not move on too quickly from that. What we're being promised is that the Lord overall. That is the Lord of creation, Yahweh, the God of all gods, the omnipotent and omniscient one. Well, it's he who promised to be our loving, nurturing shepherd. He doesn't stand far off, he comes in close and he holds us, nurtures us. Maybe hard for some to understand the wonder and beauty in this, but but we must grasp this reality. I felt it keenly this last summer when my dad died. Um, there lay my dad in his bed and uh, laying on his side, which he hadn't left for, for days upon days. And You could just see his face changing and um, knew he was going to pass. And his breathing was my strong dad, right? So his breathing started to slow, and it slowed, and it slowed. And we were down close, so I was down close to his face just watching him. And uh, he was like grass that withers. No strength left in his bones. Not able to cry out, hardly able to breathe his last breath, like, 100% dependent on the loving shepherd holding him. That's comfort. That's the comfort that we have in Christ. I was comforted by his nearness as he lifted me into his, his arms and gently led me into his comfort as well through tears and, and through family and through his promises. At the root of the comfort that God's people are to experience are the promises of God to, to not only deliver us, but to be our loving and present and future shepherd, one who will never let us go. This, this, is, this is enormous comfort. Yeah, well, there's always been significant reasons for the people of God to be able to live in a confident expectation of God's action on their behalf. Each one of us knows that doubt arises in our hearts and any comfort we've felt seems to wither as fast as our lives do. All of us say things like, I know that God's promised this, but I don't see it happening. And I'm frankly grown of this whole thing. I doubt that he's really able to save me out of the trouble I'm in or save and keep that person I love. God in his gracious love and patience anticipates the doubts and the questions and the wonderings and he is gracious, oh he's so gracious to put up with our questions lovingly so he is so verses 12 through 26 we hear a glut of truths about God that teach and remind and instill and gird up our faith and anticipation that God not only promises to deliver his people but he guarantees it because he is powerful to do so God is powerful to deliver his people. We're coming up on an election year, and one of the things about election years that that is always true, you, you hear your politician or, or the other politician or the other politicians, they're all promising things, right? Promise after promise after promise. And, and you, know, you know very much, if, if you're thoughtful at all from history, you know very much that the majority of those promises, they don't have the power to follow through on. They just don't. And even if they did follow through on a promise, it's four years and something might change. It's never guaranteed. It's never a stated reality. Someone who promises something and yet is not powerful to follow through on that promise is, is is a mean person. Brutal in some ways. You put your trust in Him, And yet he doesn't have the power. You put your trust in her. And she doesn't have the power. From the Israelites' perspective, God seemed unable to prevent the Babylonians from capturing them and capturing their city. So why would they think he can now deliver them from them? Every other exile that had taken been taken away uh, knew that if they they probably might not die, but they they certainly weren't coming back. Not in their lifetime. And so it was. Being saved had zero chance of happening. So for God to promise that their deliverance is going to happen was to make a significant and huge, almost unbelievable claim. Why would they believe the promises of their God? Isaiah answers the question by making the point that God is able to deliver them, not simply because he's greater than the Babylonian God, but he's greater than all gods. He is the God of all gods. He is the one who is over all. He does as he pleases. Verses 12 through 14, uh, we read a set of rhetorical questions that are meant to bring us to the proper conclusion. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? The, the, the conclusion that they're supposed to come to is that Yahweh is the Creator. He's not the created. He isn't the mountains. He is not the sun. He's not the moon. He's not the oceans. He is other, altogether, other than all these things. In fact, he holds all these in his hand. There is no one like our God. He is the creator of the world, and he does all as he pleases. No one can stay his hand. He, who is it that can accomplish all that he sets out to do? You? Me? Our government? Our friends? Our spouses? The one who can guarantee to accomplish everything he's promised is one, and it is the creator. It's the only true God, the creator of heaven and earth, who is unequaled in understanding, and as such is to be trusted when his people have limited understanding. And we feel the limited understanding, don't we? We don't understand why it is we're going through this. Why did that happen? Why do I continue to struggle with this same thing over and over and over again? Why is this disease not leaving me? Why isn't God answering my prayers for healing? Why? 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 Well, compared to God, first of all, the the powerful nations of the earth are nothing. God brought every single nation into existence, and to him the most important of the nations does not weigh enough to even move a balance scale. Babylon, we we have a hard, hard time thinking about how big and brutal Babylon was, or the Syrian empire. They, they were enormous, and they were so brutal. Or Egypt, or, or Russia, or China, or America may be great in our own eyes, in the eyes of their neighbors, but in the eyes of the one who spoke light into existence, nothing. They amount to nothing, ultimately. Our, our God who promises to deliver, well, he's transcendent. He's unequaled. He's unmatched. There are none like Him. To take our eyes off of our transcendent Creator God and place them onto anything else, which which I do every single day in some way, and you do also. To take our eyes off of our transcendent Creator God and place them onto anything, whether a person or a thing or a nation, is to lay an axe to the root of our hope. We want hope. But there's hope to be found in Christ, in God, and yet we're like chopping that thing down because we're looking for hope somewhere else. In verses 21 through 24, we see that God sits above the heavens and he stretches out the heavens like a curtain and a tent. The reality is our God is worthy of praise. Everything created and everything we see, everything we don't see created by God. He is the ruler over all things. He is powerful. His word has power. Speaks about um, the word of his power. When he speaks, his word will not return empty. His word will accomplish everything it was meant to do. So it's this God who's promised to deliver his people. He's not an impotent God. Rather, he's the only one who is not only willing But he's powerful to do so. He's not like a politician who just kind of wants to do it, but can't. He is God Almighty. No one stays his hand. So when he says he will deliver, he will deliver. And what that means for Israel is not only is God able to defeat their enemies, but that he intends to defeat their enemies. You might imagine how much anticipation that created in the Israelites as they were heading off, shackled. And you might imagine how difficult it was to keep your eyes on the prize. He will see to it that his plans will prosper, that his promises will be fulfilled. And that's meant to comfort his people no matter what happens in this life. God promises to deliver his people, and he's powerful to follow through with his promises. And so with those two things, we can truly conclude this. The God of all comfort is entirely worthy of our trust. Not not complicated. This God who promises and delivers, powerful to deliver, he is entirely worthy of our trust. In verse 27, the people of Israel feel in the midst of difficulty that their way is hidden from God and that God has simply given up on them or disregarding them. Now certainly you and I can feel the same thing in the midst of difficulty. But what is it that Isaiah tells them? He graciously, straightforwardly tells them that their theology, their view of God, their understanding of God is just way too low. So, so, how is your view of God? Is he a God made in your image or your own imagination, or is he the one whom Isaiah is speaking of with absolute clarity? Spend some time this week, if you would. Read, it's not a Christmas passage, but it's, it's the book of Job and look at the arguments that are going on, what God says, and how the effect was on Job, who already had a good view of God, but had a bigger view of God by the end, and trusted him entirely. Isaiah reminds us of right theology and a high view of God in verses 28 through 29. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Now, let let me just say these two questions. We can read those questions like as, like that Isaiah is kind of irritated, have you, like just kind of incredulous. Have you not heard? What's wrong with you people? He's like, he's reminding. So think about it in a gentle, straightforward manner. Friend, have you, have you not known? Have you not heard? Let me remind you. The Lord, he's the everlasting God. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. In fact, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, and do you feel like you don't have any might to conquer your sin? No might to conquer the disease that you feel? no no, No might to deal with the anxiety or depression that embraces you during the week? To him who has no might, he increases strength. God is the one who has promised and is powerful enough to follow through on that promise. Isaiah is reminding them of God's eternal power as creator of all. His power being endless does not grow tired like you and I grow tired. We have a hard day of work and we're tired. We need to sleep. God does not sleep. His wisdom is so high above all. Not only is his power and wisdom endless, but he shares his power with us in this text in particular by by giving the faint strength. He shares his strength with us. He gives it to us. The ones who have no might, he gives us power. Our circumstances may be entirely difficult, but the God who is the eternally powerful and, and eminently wise promises to increase our strength. And the one who promises is powerful enough to do it. In verse 28, Isaiah's question again is, is, causes us to think about the, the, the reality of, of, of what we're reading. The, the Like we've all heard it. We all know it. We've all read it. If you've been in church for any amount of time, if you've sung hymns, if you've sung Christmas carols at any time, you know the power of God. You've you've heard about it. But But we don't rest in the goodness of it. And so we don't enjoy the comfort of trusting in God amid good days or bad days. We can live in a confident place of comfort, trusting in God's action on our behalf. We can wait with confident expectation that the God who has promised to deliver and is able to deliver with all of His strength, all of His power, all of His wisdom to give them exactly what they need, what we need at the right time, whether it's to mount up with wings like eagles or to run and not be weary or to walk and not faint. We can trust the Almighty One, the One who has promised, the One who is powerful enough to deliver. We can trust Him. The root of our comfort, the root of Israel's comfort, the root of our comfort, is deeply embedded in the promises of and the ability of God Almighty to come to them and deliver them and to save them. So God promises. He's powerful enough to follow through on His promises. And He will do it whether or not we have a good mind along the way. What I'm trying to say this morning is that to experience comfort amid the difficulties of this life. We've been given the Word of God, we've been given God Himself. All of His promises. For the Israelites, the promise of God to deliver was a distant hope. And yet it was meant to be a confident comfort that they were to live in during their very difficult exile in Babylon. Certainly, this was a hard reality, only living in waiting for a deliverance to come. But for you and I today, during the stay of our own exile, here living in confident comfort lies in the reality of the promise of deliverance that they've all come true because God has already come to us. The Gospel of Mark begins this way, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This, this messenger was John the Baptist, as we know. He was preparing the way for God to come and deliver his people, as he had promised hundreds of years prior. And God has come to deliver his people in the person of Jesus, who is both God and man. Each, each of the gospel insists that Jesus is both God and man at the same time. His humanity is both assumed and it's witnessed. His deity is both implied and asserted repeatedly by Jesus himself. People who say Jesus never claimed to be God, we never read that, that Jesus claimed to be God. Well, you're not reading the Bible, because the Bible says it over and over and over again. Jesus claimed to be God numerous times, and those who saw his glory, those who saw his glory in his life, death, and resurrection and ascension, they declared his glory among the nations, which is what we're doing also this morning and in our days that we live. Matthew says in the mouth of Peter, you, Jesus, are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Mark, in response to the question as to whether he is the Son of the blessed one, Jesus responds this way. He says, I am. I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You see both the the reality that he is who he says he is, God Almighty, and that he will one day come again. Luke expands both the question and the answer when he quotes the rulers of Israel who ask this, uh, are you the son of God then, Jesus? And Jesus said, you say that I am, but it's John that the understanding of Jesus being both God and man is made most explicit. We, we can look at a number of scriptures, but let's just look at two for a second. Jo- Jesus says, in particular in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. We are one. Now, there's way too much to go into there about the reality of that, but what he's declaring there is that he is God, no doubt. Whoever has seen me, John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The Apostle Paul adds his voice to the mix, teaching in Philippians 2 this, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, made himself a servant, but becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord." To the glory of God the Father. The fact is, Jesus Christ has come to deliver His people. This is this is the word Emmanuel, God with us. We live in the good of Emmanuel. We live in the peace of Emmanuel. We live in the hope of Emmanuel. We live in the comfort of Emmanuel. He has come to deliver His people. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. It's what we remind ourselves repeatedly about, because we just tend to forget in our days. But the King has come. God has come. So what's he come to deliver us from? Well, it's not the Babylonians for us, thankfully. It's not the Assyrians. Is it ourselves? Is it the systems of the world is it financial sorrow or difficult family situations or suffering or sickness or death? Well, ultimately, all of those things are included. But listen, standing over all of those circumstances is the overarching reality that God delivers us from the just penalty of our sins. That, that's, he delivers us from his righteous and just wrath against our sin, which is... Actions both done or not done that are done in rejection of his lordship. We've all sinned, the Bible says, and fallen short of the glory of God. It says in other places that we're in bondage. We are in shackles of our sin. We are in the kingdom of darkness, firmly entrenched in it. And the wages of our sin is death and the wages of being in that kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of the enemy, kingdom of Satan. Well, there's, there's just simply death and sorrow both now and forever. We need to be delivered. We need to be saved. One song that we sing this time of year says this, Oh, the freedom our Savior won The yoke of sin has been broken, once a slave, now by grace, no more condemnation. He who is mighty has done a great thing. He's conquered or taken on flesh, conquered death's sting, shattered the darkness, and lifted our shame. Holy is his name. Our holy and powerful and all-wise God promised to come, and each Christmas the whole world is given the opportunity to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ over and over and over again, and that in Him there is hope of deliverance. There is hope for the deliverance from the bondage of slavery and the threat of eternal punishment. So we sing songs like and we hear songs in our culture, joy to the world, the Lord has Let earth receive her king. And he goes on to talk about the reality of our, no more let sin and sorrows rule us and rule in this world. The Lord has come. Perhaps this Christmas you find yourself having found your eternal comfort in the gift of Jesus. It's great. But you're filled with anxieties and struggles in your current circumstances as you wait for his second coming, second advent. The Apostle Paul again calls us elect exiles. We are exiles in a foreign land and so we're not at home in this world. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Satan, to the kingdom of his son, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light. So we feel very uncomfortable in this world. We've been delivered from the penalty of sin and yet we live again as citizens of the kingdom of God in this world that is at enmity with its creator, and we feel it. Oftentimes, as we wait, life is filled with difficulty and we're tempted to forget that the Lord is faithful to his promises. He is powerful to follow through on those promises, so listen to this for a moment from 1 Peter chapter one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Two, it's a promise. Okay, two, an inheritance that is imperishable. Who can say it's imperishable? But one, God can say it. It's it's imperishable. It's undefiled and it's unfading. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, you know, being guarded through faith today for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And as you rejoice, joy to the world, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, your trust in him, your fear of God, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So joy to the world. The Lord has come. In Jesus is deliverance, in Jesus is hope, in Jesus is peace, in Jesus is joy, in Jesus is absolute certainty, in Jesus is eternal life. In Jesus, we are kept for that final day when he returns for us or we go to him through the doors of death. And in Jesus alone is the comfort that we long for. It's just straight up biblical truth. Living by faith in the way, the truth, and the life of our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, our Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ is where, is the one place where we will find the comfort we long for. Comfort will not be found in circumstances. Comfort will not be found in anything else, but it is deeply embedded in Emmanuel, God with us. Paul says to Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, all kinds of people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works." May we pray, as the psalmist prays in Psalm 62. We'll close on this. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. Let me, let me preface this by saying, this is a prayer for you to pray this week as Christmas approaches. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God, so trust in Him at all times, O people pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. As we have ample opportunity at Christmas time to be reminded that in Christ we are brought profoundly face to face with the one whom alone can comfort our weary souls. May we live in light of his powerful promises that our deliverance both today and forever is absolutely 100% assured in him. Trust in him at all times. Dear friends, We have the joy uh, week after week of celebrating um, not just the birth of Christ, but the life and death of Christ. And um, the death in particular of Christ, we celebrate at the Lord's Supper. We celebrate the Lord's Supper in particular each week because it reminds us that all of our hope, all of our deliverance is found in his body broken for us and his blood spilled for us. And, and his body and blood sustain us in our faith. Gives us uh, a, a grace to, to walk, reminds us that in him is life, in him is hope. And so if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, whether it's your first time in this church building or not, you have given your life to Jesus, you are welcome to join us um, in this meal. The, there's there's uh, the elements on this front and this front, and we will hand them out to you. If you don't trust in Jesus, if you haven't trusted in him, I don't mean if you're struggling to trust him in your situation, I mean if you are still in a place of rejecting him as Lord and Savior, then this meal is not for you. This doesn't even make sense for you to make it. This is a meal for those who have, who have um, who've absolutely just said, Lord, I, I, I am a broken man, I'm a broken woman, a broken young child, whatever, and I need a Savior. Uh that's what the that's what this meal's for. So would you